0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andre Kurenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Jeff Klune. Uh, Jeff Klune is an associate professor of computer science at the University of British Columbia and a faculty member of the Vector Institute. Previously, he was a research team leader at OpenAI, and before that, a senior research manager and a founding member of Uber AI Labs. And prior to that, he was an associate professor in computer science at the University of Wyoming. So there's a ton of interesting research uh, in Jeff's uh, CV, and we'll dive into uh, some of it. So uh, yeah, thank you so much, Jeff, for joining us for this interview. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All righty. Well, before we dive into any of your specific work, we always like to start by asking how you first got interested in AI and how you made your path, like actually to work on AI.
1: Yeah, I think for as long as I can remember, I have been fascinated by two questions. Uh, one of them is, you know, what is thinking? How does thinking happen? How does the brain think? How do... The brains of animals think, how do they learn, etc.? Uh, and the other question is, how did we get all of the amazing things that we see in the natural world? Now, if you look at jaguars, hawks, the human brain, three toed sloths, fruit flies, it's just these absolutely amazing, mind boggling engineering devices. If you think about it from that lens, like how would you build a fruit fly or a blue, a blue whale? Uh, and here we have this relatively simple process that produced it all. Uh, so how does that happen? You know, How do you go from like, an embryo to a blue whale or a three-toed sloth? All of that. Where do you get all this complexity in the natural world? And so I think my whole career has been pursuing both of those questions. And they interrelate a lot, obviously, because Darwinian evolution produced our brain, as well as all of the amazing marvels in, that we see in the natural world.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think I find it interesting. You have some associations with the artificial life uh, research community as well as AI, and uh, many people don't know about kind of the goals and and concepts of artificial life. But I find it really interesting myself.
1: Yeah, I think that it, it's definitely been on the fringes of machine learning or almost um, unknown to traditional machine learning for a long time. Uh, that there are people like myself and others that were really fascinated by these questions and were kind of pursuing them in the A-life world, um, but increasingly that's no longer true. Like the machine learning community is waking up to a lot of the research questions that we've been pursuing in other fields, you know, for a while, and now you're seeing more and more ideas from both evolutionary algorithms and evolutionary computation, but also open-endedness and artificial life, which I hope we'll have time to talk about later, kind of becoming more mainstream. Uh, in conferences like NeurIPS and ICML. And so that's been interesting for me to um, see kind of the merger of these um, separate interests. There are things that historically and actually have been separate are now coming together as researchers in both fields are kind of cross-pollinating.
0: Mm. So I suppose given these interests, when you got to you know undergrad and, and grad school, it was a pretty natural fit to then become interested in AI and eventually wind up doing research on it, uh, just to pursue that interest.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, so my, my, my path is long and winding. Okay. Um, in fact, if you'll indulge in a, a bit of a long story, what happened was I went to the university of Michigan and I thought, you know, who has a, who's got the market cornered on thinking, how do I learn about thinking? And so I thought that that was best studied in philosophy. So mm. I, was an under, I did an undergrad in philosophy uh, and then I went and tra- you know, worked for a while and then traveled the world for like a year and a half. And I came back and I was like, um, you know, what do I want to do? What do I want to study? And I had read an article before I left for my tra- world travels about somebody who had evolved robots in a computer simulation and then sent them to a 3D printer and printed them and they walked around in the real world. And I remember thinking that is absolutely incredible. You can put Darwinian evolution in a computer simulation and it can design and create complex things that can like come out into the real world. Like my mind was blown. And after, you know, traveling the world for a year and a half, I said, I want to do that. Like I have no background in it. I don't even know what it is. I have to go do that. So I contacted this professor who had done the work. His name was Hod Lipson. He was at Cornell. And I said, you know, I have a philosophy undergrad. I have no business being in your lab, but I want to do that, and I think I think I'd be good at it, and you know, I'm passionate about it. Can I come do it? And he said, Well, I'd love to have you join my lab, but you know, you you can't get into the Cornell computer science PhD program with an undergrad in philosophy. You know, so um, you know, that's just sorry, that's just not going to work. And I said, Oh, that's a bummer. So I basically contacted like 70, 80 different universities that were doing this thing called genetic algorithms because I had found out that that was the technology under the hood. And everyone was like, sorry, no, you can't join our PhD program with an undergrad in philosophy. But one place wrote back, and this was Michigan State, and they said, well, you can't get into the PhD program because you, you need an undergrad in, in computer science. But we have a philosopher here. His name is Rob Pennock, and he works with the people who do this thing called artificial life and evolutionary algorithms. And I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to go to Michigan State as a philosophy master's student, because I know that once you're in grad school, you can take courses in any. Uh, department so i 'm going to get into the philosophy program i 'm going to take as many computer science classes as i can i 'm going to learn a program i 'm going to learn the math i 'm going to show them that I can hang and do the research uh, while getting my master's kind of like at nights and weekends and so I did that and at the end of my, my master 's in philosophy, I had taken multiple cs classes and machine learning classes and you know aced them and i had published papers in artificial uh, in evolutionary algorithms and artificial life with this, this lab. And I said, okay, now can I get into the PhD program? And they said, okay, so I got a PhD in computer science. And then I asked her, like, I called up, you know, Hod Lipson at Cornell eight years later. And I was like, all right, now I've got a PhD in computer science. Now can I join your lab? And he said, yes, come on in. And so eight years later, I joined Hod's lab at Cornell. Uh, and two years after that, I was a professor at the University of Wyoming, receiving my own emails from people who are fascinated and wanted to know how they could get into the field.
0: Wow! Yeah, it is quite uh, an interesting path, and uh, <laughs> you've had you know a fair number of people with interesting paths. So it's always uh, cool to hear that you know you definitely don't need the traditional kind of CS undergrad uh, kind of career trajectory. You can still find your way if you're really passionate about it.
1: It's true. In fact, I think probably most people don't know this, but one of the great things about machine learning in the last five to ten years is because it was. A field that went from very few people to all of a sudden a tremendous explosion of funding and interest and opportunity. Basically, all the barriers were lowered and people were were, still to this day. But even especially a couple of years ago, people were looking for any smart scientists that had a mathematical background or a science background. So we had physicists and chemists and biologists and everybody statisticians, everyone being welcomed into this tent. And so it's been this great mixing of um, interdisciplinary backgrounds. Uh, in the field of machine learning which has been wonderful to see
0: yeah and uh, these days i imagine unlike in the 2000s actually getting into it you know learning to program learning to build neural nets uh, is uh, also much more approachable you can take classes from fast ai or or many other places so
1: it's really cool to see
0: that yeah Mm -hmm. So then uh, when you got to learning CS and doing research, um, my thinking is we can go slightly chronological progression for your research because there's a lot of interesting themes that you went through. Uh, So where did you start? What was sort of the first driving work in your master's and PhD?
1: Yeah, so uh, early on, I was in this lab that basically was using simulations of evolution Uh, to ask and answer open questions in evolutionary biology. So you basically have in a computer um, what we call digital organisms. They have like a genome. They have to copy their own instructions. uh, They have to self-replicate. And they can do certain things that speed up their replication. The the analogy would be like being able to metabolize resources from the environment or something. Uh, And once you have this, you can ask all sorts of questions. So one of the first questions that I started to ask is, you know, why are organisms nice to each other, you know, when do we get altruism and cooperation showing up? And so I did a lot of work into that. And another question I had, which is a very natural question, which people still to this day ask a lot in machine learning, is, you know, for all these systems, there's kind of like these what we call hyperparameters, there's these knobs that you can tune that change how the algorithm will perform. You know, like how quickly does it learn? How big is the network? Things like this. And so one of the questions that I asked early on is, you know, can evolution do a good job of managing its own parameters, like its own hyperparameters? And the, the, the fundamental one is a mutation rate. So, you know, if you have an evolving system, sometimes it makes mistakes. That's how it's like the fuel behind evolution is these rare mistakes, and sometimes they're good, most of the time they're bad. But if they are good, then that leads to, you know, innovation and new species and new genes and antibiotic resistance and all this stuff. And so one of the things I asked was, can evolution optimize its own mutation rate? If you like have it evolve that, uh, we'll do a good job. And most people think the answer to that question is yes, it will do a wonderful job. But we showed pretty convincingly that, that, that actually the opposite is true that evolution does a really terrible job of managing its own mutation rate for long-term adaptation. It's very short-sighted and very greedy, and it doesn't do a good job of that. So I thought that was kind of, you know, one of these nice examples of how once you have a system where you can test questions kind of quickly in computer simulations, and you can get to answers rather quickly.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And actually, on that note, um, I imagine some of our listeners are... You know, reading a lot about deep learning and neural nets and everything, but uh, some may not even be aware of genetic algorithms and that whole sort of sub area of algorithms. So maybe uh, let's go through like a high level explanation of what GAs are and and sort of, uh, yeah, how they function at a high level.
1: Sure. Yeah. So it's actually, this is one of the algorithms for machine learning that I think is easiest to understand. Uh, it's very intuitive, especially if you have any background in, in in understanding of evolution. So imagine, for example, that you wanted to what we say like evolve a chair or design a chair, okay? And you want something that looks a lot like Darwinian evolution to be the designer of the chair. But what you could do is you could say, all right, I'm going to determine, I'm going to specify how I might encode a chair in a genome. So maybe I have the length. Of each of the legs of the chair as four separate numbers on the genome, and maybe I have you know the width, length, and height of the top of the chair, and the same for the back of the chair, for example. Uh, once I have that, then any string of numbers, you know, if I have the number like four, 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 three, two, seven, five, six, then I just know how to turn that into a chair. I'm like, okay, the length of the legs is all four, you know, the height, weight, you know, height and width, and thickness of the base of the chair, et cetera, et cetera. And I can go from this string of numbers to this chair. Okay, well, that is one particular chair. But what if I took a string of numbers, a list of numbers that currently encodes a chair that's like, okay, but not great. And I just change one of those numbers randomly. And then I unpack that into the, the corresponding chair. And then maybe that chair is really like way worse than the previous chair. So I could throw it out. Or what if it's slightly better Then I would keep it? And so you could basically have what we call a population. So you have like a big list of different genomes or different chair descriptions, and you evaluate them all in a simulator um, or in the real world if you want to say, like, you know, do they look good? Are they strong? Um, Do they support my weight, et cetera? Whatever your criteria are, you evaluate them, you give them a score. And basically, all you do is you do something that looks a lot like evolution. So imagine I have 100 chair descriptions, I evaluate them all. They all can therefore get a score. I take the top 20% and then I just basically create copies of those top 20%. We call those offspring. And for each of those copies, it's exactly like its parents' chair description, except I change some of the numbers randomly. So maybe the, the length of the legs gets a little longer or the, the thickness of one of the parts of the chair gets a little thinner, et cetera, et etc. And then I reevaluate it. And I just repeat this process over and over again. And what you can do is you can use that to, to evolve chairs or tables or parts for a car or scheduling systems for supercomputers, uh, all sorts of crazy stuff, robots, you know, and, and you name it. It's just a very kind of intuitive, simple way to harness the ideas behind the evolution to automatically design stuff that works.
0: Yeah, it's, it is very intuitive and quite kind of fun to play around with uh, if you try just designing a genome and seeing all these populations of agents and what they do. It's, it's a pretty cool uh, formalism. And speaking of what you can do with it, uh, jumping to a little bit later in your um, grad school, uh, one kind of nice example is uh, evolving, um, here you have a paper, evolving, coordinate, quadruped gates with the hyperneat uh, generative encoding. Neat is one of the kind of main uh, or big algorithms there. So, um, yeah, maybe we can talk a bit about this work you've had. And there's a couple of papers on uh, gates and how uh, G-algorithms can be used to you know, make these little four-leg things walk around. Yeah,
1: so actually that, that dovetails really nicely with the chair explanation I was just given. So um, let's go back and think about what happens when you are evolving a chair. Uh, if you do what I said, which is that you list the length of each one of the chair legs separately on the genome, then think about what most mutations will do to those chairs. Okay, so, One of the most fundamental things you want for a chair is, when you sit on it, you want it to not fall over. You want it to be balanced, which means for 99.99% of the chairs in the world, the length of all of the legs is the same, right? So it would actually be a remarkably bad decision to put the four chair lengths separately on the genome because most of the time, if I'm randomly changing those numbers, I'm not going to end up with all four legs being the same number. If I start out with like, you know, the length is four, like three, 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 and I change one of them, now one leg is longer than the other, so I have to throw it out. I'll change another one, you know, going to throw it out, et cetera, et cetera. So a much better thing to do is probably to just have the length of legs be one number in the genome. And every time I change it, it actually unpacks into all four of those chair lengths, right? And so that right there is a switch from what we call to a a direct encoding, where you're separately encoding every part of the final resulting thing, your chair, your robot, whatever, uh, to what we call a generative encoding, where you have kind of the information is compact and it's being uh, reused in multiple parts of the resulting thing. Um, So if one of the things that if you look at in the biological biological world is that. Regularity, which is this idea of reusing information in a regular pattern, it's everywhere in the animal kingdom. Like right now, you know, if you look at me, the length of my legs are the same, roughly, the length of my arms are symmetric. I have left right symmetry. I also reuse a lot of information, like all of my cells are more or less kind of the same basic building blocks, and all of my neurons are very similar, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, it's, it's quite technical, but in the work that you're referring to, what we did is we took an idea from Ken Stanley, who is one of my longtime friends and collaborators, which was how do abstract the power of developmental biology, like, how does biology get all this regularity? How does it reuse information? and how do we put that into one of these evolutionary algorithms? And so one of the really cool things, if you think about it, is that you know the human brain has about 100 trillion connections and about 100 billion neurons. But and you know and that's just the brain, let alone the rest of the body. Yet the genome of a human is only about twenty five thousand genes. So what you have is a very small amount of information that gets unpacked into this fantastically complicated final thing. And so Ken figured out a computational abstraction of the principles that evolution is using to specify really complicated things in a small number of genes. And he put that in this algorithm called CPPNs, which later turned into hypernets. Uh, and that's what I used in that paper to say. Why don't we take those ideas and go back to a robot? And for a robot, as it's learning to walk, it shouldn't do something different with its front left leg as its back right leg. Back right leg, there should be a reuse of information, and they should probably be all coordinated. And basically, if you use these principles from developmental biology that allow you know a genome to specify a brain and a, a symmetric body, and you use that when you're designing a robot controller for a, a computational brain, then what you get is beautiful, regular gates and robots that look a lot like natural animals, like cheetahs running around um, the savannah, because we're basically stealing secrets from Mother Nature.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, these days, uh, this kind of problem of robotic uh, gates for quadrupeds is still a big deal. If you look at Boston Dynamics and their little dog robot, that's still a big area of research. So uh, definitely interesting. And I found it pretty cool that uh, after that, you uh, worked a bit on uh, also actual robots instead of simulation. Uh, So you have these cool looking quadruped robots. And so, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit on how did it work out to actually try and transfer this to hardware as as opposed to simulation, which was the previous paper.
1: Yeah. So um, initially we did probably the the least intelligent thing imaginable, which is that we literally just tried uh, to directly evolve stuff in hardware. We thought, well, previous attempts to do this didn't work very well because they had kind of used those direct encodings. They had separately encoded each leg and that's not as good. We've got this abstraction of computational, of developmental biology. It has regularity that's more sample efficient. Let's just like put it on a robot and see. Uh, And that resulted in many... Many painful, long nights at the Cornell lab <laughs> where we were just literally sitting there watching this robot like flail around, and mostly break itself and break motors and break leg parts. We'd have to reprint them on the 3D printer. And, you know, it's pretty painful. It worked. It did eventually learn. So it was pretty cool to watch this thing go from randomly flailing around underneath your feet to kind of like flopping itself and eventually walking across the lab. Um, but it was uh, it took a lot of trials. It broke the robot a lot. Uh, and so we then went on to um, a really cool approach, which ended up being on the cover of Nature uh, in 2015, which is the top scientific journal in the world. And this was work that was led by um, Antoine Collier and Jean-Baptiste Moret, uh out of France by long term collaborators. Um, and... Uh, The general idea there is what basically there's this really new, cool, new family of algorithms that are called quality diversity algorithms. And um, my colleagues and I are kind of um, creating this, this new subfield. And the idea here is that traditional machine learning and optimization, you give it a problem and it tries to come back with the best solution to that problem. So, you know, you say, hey, you know, go be the best go player you can be. Or we want a robot that can run as fast as possible, and you know there's this search algorithm that will search through the space of all these potential robotic gates or controllers, or whatever, and it'll come back and be like, "Here's the best thing I found," right? Uh, and that's pretty cool. But what quality diversity algorithms do is something rather different. What they say is, "I don't want the single best thing that you can find. I want this huge diversity of totally different solutions, but where every solution is." pretty high quality. So the analogy here is, you know, if you went to Mother Nature and you said, make me the fastest thing, then you wouldn't get 3-toed sloths and you wouldn't get fast ants and you wouldn't get fast bears and you wouldn't get Usain Bolt because there's a cheetah. And once you have a cheetah, nothing else is fast. And therefore, all search for all this diversity of stuff is over. You're just going to focus on better and better cheetahs. So quality diversity algorithms say, that is so, that's like not nearly as cool as what happens in nature. Why don't you instead come back and give me the fastest ant and the fastest three-toed sloth and the fastest human, et cetera, et cetera. And then let's see what we can do with that. So this robotics paper that was in nature, we took this algorithm that um, Jean-Baptiste and I invented called Map Elites, And all it does is something relatively simple. It says, we're going to pick some dimensions of um, what we call dimensions of variations or ways that something can be different. Like if you were doing um, robots, it might be like energy, uh, like how fuel efficient it is. And, you know, I don't know, the maximum torque that it ever like, uh, exhibits or something like its max strength. And then you say, I want the fastest gate for each of the points in that space. So, you know, another analogy, a simpler one is like, imagine if you're doing you're kind of doing robot bodies, you're like, I want the fastest robot for all the all the different heights and all the different weights. So I want the fastest tall skinny robot, and the fastest short skinny robot, and the fastest, you know, uh, tall fat robot, or whatever. Uh, and you can imagine this like huge diversity of solutions that come back. So in this Nature paper, what we did is said, all right, we want robots that can walk in a huge variety of different ways. So imagine if we, what we did is we told the robot it was a six-legged robot, and we said we want you to try to be like the fastest version, but only using these two legs. And now we want to see the fastest version only using these three legs or only using like these four legs this percent of the time. All these different combinations. And so the, over, the original search space had more molecules than there are in the solar system, which is just a huge amount. You know, you can't possibly search through that. This algorithm searched through that uh, as well as it could. It came back with like 13,000 high quality, yet very different gates. And then the challenge was all right, we want this now to work in reality, not in simulation. So all of that sort should happen in the simulation. And so we said, now we're going to put you on a real robot, find a gate that works. Now, historically in the field of robotics, it is well known that things will work really well in simulation and they will work terribly in reality. This is called the simulation reality gap. And so one of the things we said was, you know, can this algorithm cross the gap? So what it does is it takes all of these gates that worked in simulation. We don't know which one's yet going to work in reality. And then we basically put the robot in the real world. And we say, try the best thing you found, the fastest. You know, try your cheetah. So you try it in reality, it doesn't work at all. And then we use this um, algorithm called Bayesian optimization, which is kind of um, uses a lot of fancy math. But basically, what it's going to do is say, oh, that one didn't work very well. So I'm going to rule out not only that one, but all the similar kind of gates. So basically, I'm going to rule out all the, the cheetahs. All right, tr- now we go try something else. Maybe you try your fastest, you know, Dog gate or your fastest bipedal gate or your fastest, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and so it basically learned how to intelligently move around and try like this flavor of gate, this type of gate, that type of gate. And in just a handful of trials, it could walk in the real world very well. And then we went even further and we said, okay, now what happens if we damage you? You know, like we drop a brick on your leg or whatever. Can you adapt to that? And the answer is it could very well because it had all, it started out with this like pre, like this common knowledge of all these totally different ways to walk. So if one of its legs became broken, it's like, oh, I know how to, I already know how to walk without that leg. You know, I learned that in simulation because of the quality diversity algorithm. And so basically what we show, and I encourage people to check out the videos, is in one to two minutes, in a handful of trials, like six experiments, you can take this robot. And have it just like walk, even though it can be very damaged, like one to two legs are broken. And that was just a complete sea change. Like machine learning usually takes thousands or millions of trials, a huge amount of experimentation. takes forever to learn anything. But here you see a robot that can learn to walk even when it's damaged in six or 12 experiments in about a minute of real walk-walk time.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I was just looking at this paper. Uh, I think it's robots that can adapt like animals. And as usual, we'll be linking to all this stuff uh, on our sub stack. Uh, so if you're interested in the papers, you can go to check it out for all the links. Um, yeah, it's really fun. You can uh, even look at this map in Elites and see like all the exploration that was done. Uh, so it's, it's very neat. And- yeah,
1: in fact, um, one f- funny anecdote is that nature um, and most science journals, they don't like to put data on the cover. They just usually have like a beautiful picture of like the fish that you're studying or whatever. But um, Jean-Baptiste and Antoine Kelly, they had this idea that we would sneak our data into the cover photo. And so the robot is like, we have a nice, beautiful picture of a robot, but it's standing on the map grid in the nature uh-huh. paper. So the actual data of how well either robot did for each one of these cells, each one of these combinations of using its leg is the floor. It just looks like a beautiful colored floor if you don't know what you're looking at. But in fact, we snuck our data under the cover of nature.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and um, related to that also. So this work is with this uh, pretty cool looking six uh, leg robot. But I know I think you and, and some other people have also applied this to soft robots. You can literally optimize like the body of a robot with like artificial muscles, so to speak, and things like that. Uh, So do you have any fun memories of creating these like soft robots and seeing what bodies come out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as I was describing previously, you know, Ken Stanley came up with this really cool abstraction for developmental biology, you know, for kind of like Producing bodies that have left right symmetry, but they also kind of have these like smooth regular differences. Like maybe their legs, you know, legs kind of look like arms, but they're slightly different. And like my pinky looks like my index finger, but it's slightly different. And my thumb is even a little bit more different, but they're all kind of variations on a theme, right? And so Ken created this beautiful paper on CPPNs and this website called Prick Beater, but you could see these things that started to look like animals. Uh, and they were all being designed, you know, with this algorithm that was kind of abstracting developmental biology. And so, I, one of the first things I did in my PhD is I said, "All right, I want to apply that to robotic gates because I know there's a lot of regularity in robotic gates." We already talked about that project. Another thing that I did, um, which we haven't talked about yet, is I created a, basically a 3D version of Ken's picture. So Ken had these beautiful 2D pictures, and I was like, "Well, let's just add a third dimension. Will we get like..." You know, bodies like animals, we get things that look like actual three-dimensional animals. And sure enough, we made this website called endlessforms.com, which is a reference to Darwin, the last paragraph of um, Origin of the Species. And we got these really amazing natural forms. They look like spines and vertebra and fish and whales and dolphins and chess pieces and, you know, all this cool stuff. And so you could, you know, here we were doing robotic gates. Uh, and separately, we were doing three-dimensional bodies. And then I came, I was, I was at the Cornell lab that I mentioned that Hod Lipson's lab is called the Creative Machines Lab. And there was a guy there named Jonathan Hiller, and he had made this soft voxel simulator, you know, and you could put in like these little like jello pieces, jello squares, and they could expand and contract and you could simulate like basically like they were using it for 3D printing. Like what happens if you print like a piece of rubber in a certain shape or something. And um, John had also done a little bit of work on soft robots with it. Uh, and I said, I want to hook that up to CPPNs. So I want to like take the power of developmental biology and see what it can do in this much more expressive space. Because previously, whenever people had evolved the bodies of robots, it was like you know, physically like three D physical hard parts, you know, rods and sticks and gears and stuff. And I was like, well, that, like biology is wet. It's gooey. It's squishy. You know, like think of like a stingray or a whale. You know, like you can't get that with rods and sticks. It's like so. Let's just hook developmental like, develop biology up to the simulator and we'll just try to evolve creatures that move really fast. And so I went to Nick Cheney, who is the lead author on that, and I said, you know, we've got a great opportunity here. Let's do it. And he loved it. He took it. He ran with it. And a couple of days later, I showed up in the lab and he had purposely done this. He just put up a bunch of the videos of these creatures <laughs> on his screen, like on the right hand side of his screen. And on the left hand side of his screen, he's just coding away as if nothing had happened with like a grin on his face. I walk into the lab and I just stopped and like my jaw hit the floor because I was looking at something that it was just like one of these moments in science where you see a breakthrough. You're like, this looks different than anything that has come before. This is so unbelievably cool and unique and 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 futuristic. And uh, I was like, it worked. And he was like, it worked. And uh, then Hod came in. He saw the same screen. He was blown away. We had all this fun and we made this video, which I encourage your readers to watch. It's about two to three minutes long, I think, and it's just a like a parade of these creatures walking left to right. And it just looks like a Noah's Ark of just wildly, totally different solutions, different um, types of bodies. And they all walk in interestingly different ways. Um, and we even eventually hooked that up to this MapElites algorithm. In fact, that was one of the, the, the showcases for the MapElites, this quality diversity algorithm when we first invented it. We said, look at this huge diversity of creatures you can get when you instead of looking for the best thing, you look for all the things that are good in a space and it was like the animal kingdom you can like see variations on a theme. you can basically have like turtles with different sized shells and you can have bipedal walkers with longer shorter legs and you know it just it really starts to evoke the natural world and all the marvels that you see there. So that was like being a kid in a candy shop or waking up on Christmas morning and finding a big gift in the living room and being able to unwrap it.
0: Yeah, and as you say, just, you know, it's one thing to hear about it, it's another thing to see the actual things that were evolved. Uh, so uh, definitely we will make sure to have links and maybe embeds and all that. And uh, hearing you talk of this more sort of natural evolution, uh, you know, more like soft, squishy animals and uh, inspiration from Darwin. Um, Another thing I found very interesting looking through your work was the application of these um, algorithms to studying actual evolution, like using these artificial evolution mechanisms to study how actual evolution may have worked. Uh, so for instance, you have one major work is the evolutionary origins of modularity, where uh, as far as I can tell, you, you actually make an argument that there is a kind of driving force to um, evolve the ability to adapt quickly uh, through evolution. So could we dive into that a little bit as well?
1: Yeah. So that was another major, major question I had um, as a PhD student was, you know, you look into the world and you just see modularity everywhere and hierarchy. So modularity is things when things are kind of packaged into like discrete compartments. So within your body and my body, you've got a spleen, and you have a liver, and you have lungs, and you have a heart. You have these separate things that do separate tasks. Uh, and over evolutionary time, evolution has mixed and matched and combined these things, made them bigger or smaller, maybe added like a second like stomach or a fourth stomach or whatever. Um, you know, it can use these modules. The same is true in like a car, right? You've got the spark plug, the the transmission, uh, wheels, etc. And it's also true in uh, software. So you have, you know, very modular code bases. And the reason that they're modular is because you can combi- recombine these building blocks over time rapidly to quickly adapt. Right. And so people for a very long time have thought, well, evolution has, is, is, there's modularity everywhere. It's probably because it's really good in terms of adaptation, because once you have a modular solution, just like modular code, you can adapt it very quickly. But the problem was, That's not what happens. So we have these simulations of evolution. We would run them and we would never get modular solutions. We would always get the equivalent of entangled spaghetti code or like a body that's just like a bunch of slush, you know, and not like separate parts. Right. Um, And it was this mystery for decades. Like why is modularity so pervasive in nature, but it never shows up in our simulations of evolution. It never shows up when we're using evolutionary algorithms to design brains and bodies and things like that. And so I was actually reading a book written by a guy named George Strider at UC Irvine. Uh, and toward the end of my PhD... And I almost I finished the book. It was a great book. And then there was the appendix, you know, and I normally would have just put the book down and not read the appendix. But like I said, I like this book so much that I decided to go just read the appendix also because I didn't want to be done with the book. And deep in the appendix is this random column is random. But it's like, you know, tucked away in the back. And it says, you know, modularity. We've talked about it throughout this book. This was a book on the principle of brains and, and natural brains and how they've changed over time is like modularity is everywhere, but we don't really know where it came from. And George says, interestingly, the original pioneering neuroscientist named Ramoni Cajal, he postulated in like the late 1800s that maybe modularity doesn't show up because it's a good idea, because it solves another problem that nature has, which is not adaptation, but just like, where do I stick all the wires? So as I mentioned earlier, you've got like 100 billion neurons in your head. And if every neuron was connected to every other neuron, the literal wiring would not fit in your skull. It would take up like the size of New York City or something. And so your brain is very basically sparsely connected. It has these little tiny interconnected modules. And then they only have a few wires to the other modules in the system. And so he says, unfortunately, we can't test Ramoni cahals hypothesis because we can't redo evolution without a cost for connections. And I just like like a thunderclap, I was like, wait a second. Like I can test that theory in the computer simulation of evolution. And so I said, maybe this is the answer that we've been looking for for decades in terms of where modularity came from. So uh, Jean-Baptiste visited me at the Cornell Creative Machines Lab, and I pitched this idea to him. He was excited, and we sat down and got to work. And basically, we said, all right, we're going to do evolution without a cost for connections and with a cost for connections. And we're going to see what happens. And basically, like, like a switch. Evolution goes from producing entangled spaghetti code to extremely modular brains that really kind of modularly decompose a task. You know, so if a task can be solved in separate parts and then like the solutions put together, kind of like you might separately solve subtasks in a math problem and then put the pieces together. All of a sudden, if you have a cost for connections, you see uh, evolution do that. If you don't have a cost for connections, you don't see it do that. And then interestingly, once you have this modular solution... Then if the environment changes and evolution needs to adapt really quickly, well, if it happened to have had the modular solution because of the connection cost, it is actually really fast to adapt. And there is a benefit there. But if you didn't have that cost for connections, then you don't get that fast adaptation. So basically, it is true that modularity allows for adaptability. But that's not the reason we think it shows up in nature. We think the reason it shows up in nature is because there's a cost for these connections that gets you into the space in which you have modularity. And then maybe it's also like a, an added bonus that helps maintain it, that you get fast adaptation. But that's not the origin story for modularity. And that's actually why we titled the paper The Evolutionary Origins of Modularity, because we think this is sort of the thing that gets it off the ground. Uh, we went on at my, my lab at the University of Wyoming, uh, one of my students, Hanok, um, and just so he then went on to show that the exact same thing is true for hierarchy, that if you add a cost for connections, you get these beautiful hierarchical networks uh, that kind of look like an almost like an org chart, you know, from like a, a company. Uh, and then uh, my longtime friend and collaborator Joost Heisinger, who was a PhD student in the lab as well, he basically showed you can combine all these things together. So you can get modularity, you can get hierarchy, you could even combine it with CPPNs so and developmental biology to get like these beautiful regular modular and hierarchical bodies, brains, etc. cetera, that can adapt very rapidly. And this is kind of like, again, just taking secrets from Mother Nature and getting them into our algorithms to make the algorithms do more impressive things and be more powerful.
0: Yeah, no, I found this really exciting to come upon. And actually, the Evolutionary Origins of Modularity won the outstanding publication of the decade uh, from the International Society for Artificial Life uh, this This was a decade uh, two thousand four to two thousand and fourteen, so it does seem like a pretty big deal as far as discovery
1: yeah, it was just one of those like open problems in science that um we didn't have a good answer for and a lot of people had worked on and then um thanks to George Strader and Ramoni Cajal you know in, in the appendix uh, and, and um we went and checked on it and it's a very powerful general solution and yeah, it's had a lot of uh, there's been a lot of follow up work on it, and a lot of people are pretty excited about it kind of like new potential explanation for this long-standing problem in evolutionary biology.
0: Yeah, and uh, not only does it touch on this uh, biology question, I also saw and found it interesting that you sort of tied it back into AI, uh, specifically in the context of catastrophic forgetting. So to this day, a real big issue we have with reinforcement learning uh, and really training agents is to train for a long time and not forget previous things you trained. Uh, So uh, later this was applied to, um, uh, there was this paper, Neural modularity helps organisms evolve to learn new skills without forgetting old skills, which I found really interesting. And as far as I understand, it sounds like that's pretty related, uh, this modularity aspect, Winds up um, helping you to actually not have catastrophic forgetting.
1: Yeah, so this is um, one of these fun kind of moments in a career where, like, you continue to build on these previous things that you've done and tackle new problems with the insights that you've already gained from your past research. So, I became very interested in this problem of what's called catastrophic forgetting, as you mentioned, which is the idea that you know humans and non-human animals when we learn a task. Um, we can usually kind of learn one task, and then we can switch to a different task, learn that second task, and then when we go back to the first task, we pretty much pick up where we left off. You know, for example, I haven't played volleyball in like 15 years, but if I went outside right now and I started playing, you know, I'd have to knock the rust off a little bit, but more or less, I would pick up where I left off and be able to add on top of my previous skills and get better and better. Um, this is not at all what happens in machine learning, right? So machine learning, if we learn how to play volleyball really well in a, like a neural network, and then it goes and it learns to play chess, it will learn chess by using all of its neurons, all of its resources. It will overwrite and erase everything it knows about volleyball in the process of kind of filling that brain up with chess playing skills. And then when it goes back to volleyball, it's almost as if it never learned volleyball at all. Uh, it's got to start over from scratch. More or less, and so this is why we call, we say that animals um, and humans we forget gradually, whereas um, machine learning forgets catastrophically. Like the second it starts learning chess, volleyball is toast, pretty much. And so that just you know, like I'm just drawn to problems in science that seem like they should be solvable and are really important to get to our long-term goals, but for which we currently don't have really good answers for. And there are probably I don't know fifty thousand papers or something I'm guessing over the history of science on this problem of catastrophic forgetting. Uh, And so you know one of the things that I was really inspired by also going back to like the neuroscience that you know is that in the brains of animals, we have this system called the neuromodulatory system. Now, that's a big complex word, so let's unpack it. Neurons, obviously, are things in the brains. Modulatory just means to modulate, to turn things up and down or on and off. And basically, one of the things that the neuromodulatory system does is it can turn learning on and off in other parts of the brain. So there might be like one neuron that basically says, oh, I'm playing... This is a cartoon example, right? But it says, like, I'm playing chess, so here's my hypothesis. Maybe we could have the chess playing part of the brain. Uh, you know, If it recognizes it's playing chess, it only turns learning on in the chess playing part of the brain. And if we had like a separate module for volleyball, we don't have learning going on in the volleyball part of the brain while we're playing chess and vice versa. So we decided to investigate that in my lab with very simple, small little neural nets. And we basically, we use our tools for how to create a modular brain. And then we added in this ability for neurons to turn learning on and off in other neurons. And what we show is that in these little tiny neural nets on very simple problems, you can actually perfectly solve catastrophic forgetting if you have this neuromodulation that can turn things on and off in the brains. Then we went through and we tried to um, scale this up to like the deep learning era because we were that was like history was pivoting from these small neural nets to really big ones. Um, and I, we we got a big DARPA grant to pursue this idea at scale and it wasn't working very well at all. And then I happened to give a talk at a conference and, you know, basically told them like, we're working on this, it's not working very well. And right after me, Martha White happened to give a talk and she's like, we're also, you know, she's basically was doing something pretty similar in motivation, but you know, with a lot of different design choices and, um, uh, and algorithmic choices. And I was so inspired by their work. And I said, let's take that idea and combine it with neuromodulation, what we're working on. And the result was very powerful. It's this algorithm that we call Animal. Uh, and it basically shows that if you use this thing called meta learning, where you basically just kind of like give the system the ability to get better and better at learning over time, a bunch of trials where within a lifetime, it gets to like learn a bunch of stuff. And then at the end, you test it on how well. It did on all of the stuff that it was supposed to learn, not just like the last task. Then you can basically teach the system that it should not learn volleyball at the expense of chess or vice versa. It should figure out how to put, store that information in different parts of the brain. Uh, and we combine that with neuromodulation and it worked very well.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's really cool to see all of these threads kind of emerging and connecting throughout all this work. And uh, yeah, hearing about that made me then think about another aspect of your work, which is, you know, once you get to this uh, ability to not forget and meta learning, kind of the next question is, well, how do you uh, actually figure out what skills to learn? How do you, uh, if you're doing this continuous learning across a long time, how do you kind of make the agent naturally explore and be able to figure out these are the different things i can learn and so later uh, or you know at some point you also had work on curiosity search and again tying into the lifetime thing it, it was uh, curiosity search producing generalists by encouraging individuals to continually explore and acquire skills throughout their lifetime and you had multiple uh, papers on this exploration thing, famously Explore, which uh, solved a lot of challenges. So would you say that's kind of tied in as well? And that, um, yeah, what were sort of the main ideas you got from this sub-area of work on Curiosity? Yeah, so
1: a lot of the work in my career has been focused on the question of what we could call broadly exploration. So, you know, how do you get an agent to intelligently explore a new environment and continuously learn forever? Uh, you know, like if you put a robot in a maze or your house or in a video game, you'd like to kind of figure out what's possible and to uh, and, and, uh, in order to solve problems or just to continually learn. Um, and, you know... Again, going back to Ken Stanley and Joel Lehman, they created this really beautiful algorithm called novelty search, and the idea was there was that you know instead of having a robot try to solve a problem like uh, a maze, just have it explore, just go do new stuff. And it turns out that that actually is way better, ultimately, for solving problems in many cases than just trying to directly encourage the robot to solve the problem, because if you think about it, like if you are, you know, um. Trying to, you know, if you're in a maze, for example, and you only want to get closer to the exit, well, as the crow flies, you're just going to start bumping your head into a wall. You need to go out and explore it. Eventually, you'll find the solution to the maze. It turns out this is also true in science and technology. You know, if you go back like millennia and you say, I have this thing called an abacus and I am a king and I will only fund research that makes more computing, you know, the computer... Like, do more computing. Well, you might get like more rods and longer, you know, more beads, longer rods, like a bigger abacus, maybe slightly different materials that slide better. But you're never going to like invent the modern computer because to do that, you had to have been working on vacuum tubes and, um, you know, uh, like electricity and things that were not invented because they help you with computing. So the general idea is that, you know, exploration is really mysterious and interesting. Humans are such good explorers, right? Like you could put me in a brand new video game uh, and I would just like intuitively know that I should go and like try to figure out like how the world works, how the physics works, like do I, how do I open doors? How do I get to new rooms? How do I kill enemies? How do I get coins? Whatever it is. Uh, and our algorithms are really bad at that. And so, um, for much of my career, I've been trying to figure out like how can we solve that problem? Because if you solve that problem, you're off to the races, right? Like there's so many different domains that you can go learn because exploration is such a like a fundamental skill for problem solving. And so, curiosity search is one of these papers that I did, and um, I still think it's really quite interesting, and it might be worth going back to at some point. But the idea there is, I said, you know. Ken and Joel and Jean-Baptiste and other people had shown that encouraging new behaviors is really useful. And I still think that's super powerful. But another thing that I think is interesting is what if you could encourage different ways of thinking about a problem? We know that creative thinkers and problem solvers, part of the solution is often seeing the problem in a new light. So could you directly encourage different neural firing patterns in a brain, like different ways of thinking about a problem? And that's what we did in that paper. And we showed that that also can help you um, basically be creative and solve problems. Um, and then after that, we went on to some of the other works that you mentioned, like um, harnessing some of the ideas from quality diversity to take on um, really hard challenges in the Atari benchmark suite, like Montezuma's Revenge with the Go Explore algorithm, where again, kind of like the quality diversity ideas, we basically said, like, if I put you in a new world, a new game, then why don't you go out and try to find all the different things you can do and do them all as well as you can? Like, you know, Try to get over here in the fastest way possible. Try to get over here in the most efficient way possible. Maybe try to accomplish this goal in the most efficient way possible. And if you basically just do that, kind of like a child being like, I wonder if I could do that. And then if they do it, they're like, I wonder if I can do that better, right? Oh, now I wonder if I can do that. I've never done that before. And you just get this kind of expanding set of skills that you're really good at. Well... If you do that, then boom, you're off to the races and like you can solve really, really hard problems that have defied the best attempts of the machine learning community for, for many, many years. Uh, and that also turned into a nature paper that was in 2021 on this paper, uh, Go Explore, which you alluded to. Um, so, you know, I, I think what's fun in this interview, I don't often get to talk about how all these ideas kind of intersect and overlap and come together. But you can probably hear in this conversation how... You know, this is just a lot of cross-cutting themes where we reuse ideas in a totally different problem, a totally different domain, a totally different algorithm. But yet the same basic few ingredients that we're taking from nature um, uh, come into play and really can can kind of uh, make progress on these problems.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And um, something we haven't touched on, but uh, I guess we can quickly mention is... Yet another aspect of this is related in terms of quality and diversity is then in terms of diversity, you also have work on what if you modify not just the agent, but the task. So what if you generate different environments? And this was poet and enhanced poet. And ultimately, I guess, to come to this point of tying things together, uh, you actually do have a publication Uh, or a paper titled AIGAs, uh, AI-generating algorithms as an alternative paradigm for producing general artificial intelligence, where it seems like you are actually sort of tying all these things into the notion of a paradigm with meta-learning and the algorithms and the environments. So yeah, what, uh, I guess, maybe to conclude, we can chat about this paradigm and, and what would you kind of summarize it as?
1: Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how are we going to accomplish the overall goals of our field? Like going back to Turing, we wanted to create really powerful, if not human level or superhuman level AI systems, you know, and how are we going to get all the way there? You know, and I think if you look to most papers at machine learning conference, people are basically doing what I call the manual path to AI. Which is a very engineering approach. Like, oh, I wanna solve catastrophic for forgetting. Maybe what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take this module, I'm gonna encourage the network to like, you know, have a sparse representation, and then I'm gonna feed it through this particular architecture and you know, and then I'm gonna add this auxiliary loss, da, 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 da. and they build these like complicated machines. Or they say like, here's a building block that I think will eventually help with AI. I wanna, you know, make it slightly better. But they don't worry about how that building block is gonna be put into some much big larger machine. Um, And so I just was sitting there looking at it all, and it just seemed like, man, if we have to manually discover each of the pieces of the puzzle uh, one at a time, you know, there might be hundreds, there might be thousands, and then you have to put them all together at some point. This is just going to be a very difficult path to pursue, this manual path to AI. Um, At the same time, I was noticing that there's this very clear trend in AI. Um, I think that it is basically undeniable at this point, which is that, Hand-designed pipelines, as you get more compute and you get more data, give way to entirely learned pipelines. So we've seen this with uh, architecture, where now we're learning architectures instead of hand designing it. We're seeing it with data augmentation pipelines. We're seeing it with hyperparameter optimization. We have seen it with RL algorithms themselves and meta-learning and learning to learn. And so, you know, we saw this with features originally with deep learning and language. And, you know, you hand design your features like HOG and SIFT, and now you just learn them end to end. And and so basically, any time I see somebody who's really carefully manually trying to be clever and design the solution to a machine learning problem, I basically just instinctually say, like, that might be the best thing to do for the next two or three years, but that is a dead end long term. The real answer pretty clearly is get out of the way. And let machine learning solve the problems itself. Like let machine learning do the heavy lifting and figure out how to, you know, uh, how to solve the grandest challenges in in AI. So if you really kind of think about that and take a step back, the implications become pretty clear, which is that AGI, which is the grand project of our field, itself is going to be learned, probably by ML and AI, and we need to basically set the stage for. Machine learning to design its own solution to this challenge. So, if we wanted to make progress on this, I think we need to simultaneously push on three pillars. One is, I think we need to uh, meta-learn the architectures, so get really good architecture search algorithms. Transformers are not going to be the last architecture, uh, or maybe we need like you know long context transformers, or we need transformers that have you know uh, writable disk space or whatever it is. Um, the second thing is that we need to meta-learn the algorithms themselves. Um, you know, we're not clever enough, I think, to come up with all of the best machine learning algorithms that will produce AGI. As we've seen with learning to reinforcement learn and learning to learn and things like this, meta-learning is very powerful. We saw this in that continual learning animal project that I mentioned and Martha White's original work uh, on that called OML. We saw that in the Rubik's Q work by OpenAI, where you just like let a robot basically figure out how to conduct experiments and like solve really complicated robotics challenges, et cetera. And the third pillar and the least explored is that we need to automatically have the system generate its own learning challenges. Because no matter how good you are at learning, if I tell you to play Go forever, you're just going to get good at Go or chess or Rubik's Cube. But what we need, like a human child in a big complicated world, is to say, oh, I'm pretty good at Rubik's Cube now. There's not a lot of learning progress left here. Why don't I go play with calculus? or Nintendo, or hopscotch, or you know swimming, and propose challenges, solve them, get bored with them, and move on to the next set of challenges. right? And so that's the third pillar, which is automatically generating environments. And so if you put all of these pillars together, then you have a system that could probably, this is the hypothesis, bootstrap itself from very simple origins, all the way up through... Figuring out the architectures, the algorithms, and creating its own curriculum of learning challenges to become very powerful uh, AI systems. So this is kind of the AI generating algorithm paradigm. We have a proof of concept of this in the Darwinian evolution, um, which on Earth was a very simple algorithm that bootstrapped itself from rocks to humans, uh, human-level AI. And so I think this is probably the fastest path to AI and it's super fascinating. And as you alluded to, I've done work on all three of these pillars. We've done work on architecture search and meta-learning. But the, the piece that I think is most relevant to the conversation we've had is we also worked on POET and Enhanced POET, which is a system that will automatically generate challenges. And it takes a lot of these ideas from evolutionary algorithms and quality diversity algorithms and this idea that like the abacus, you don't want to just focus on computation. You want to serendipitously like try to get try to do computation, get better at that, but then go work on hopscotch or vacuum tubes or electricity and do all these different challenges. And eventually you probably come back and become better at computing. And so this idea that you want to just go explore, go learn, uh, and get better on a number of different fronts, you know, like quality diversity in the space of challenges, if you will. And ultimately that unlocks massive amounts of learning and allows you to solve problems that were otherwise unsolvable.
0: Yeah, and it will be really exciting. I think these ideas are still kind of beyond the reach of most uh, AI research, is like usually you choose a problem and you try to make the thing solve a problem, uh, which you know ultimately, if you want to get to general AI, you know you can't just say solve everything. The agent needs to learn to explore and figure things out. So definitely, really looking forward to seeing more work in this uh, in this thread. Um, and to touch on a final thing, uh, we've been jumping around a lot, uh, but I think this is really fun uh, and maybe not exactly research, but you are one of the authors of a paper titled The Surprising Creativity of Digital Evolution, a collection of <laughs> anecdotes from the evolutionary computation and artificial life research communities. So we, we alluded a little bit how, you know, as you do this research, you come in and you see, oh, wow, this thing evolved. And it's, you know, some weird body and it's doing a thing. And it's quite fascinating. And uh, this paper has dozens of people kind of saying uh, what we've seen in the experience. Uh, so, yeah, what was uh, your part in this paper and kind of what are the examples you can draw on?
1: Yeah, so this paper is basically um, an attempt to take something that was very common at like the bars of machine learning conferences and put it into a paper. So a lot of the people in, in evolutionary algorithms and reinforcement learning, anyone who's doing with search and optimization, it's very routine that we have these hilarious anecdotes where we thought we were asking the machine to do one thing. And it turned out the machine did what we said and not what we wanted. Uh, and so we got some very surprising result where it outsmarted us and outwitted us, you know, and it, it surprised us. And um, the thing is, is that everyone in the field knew these stories and told them kind of orally, but nobody ever put them into a paper. We thought it would be interesting to write them all down so we could kind of like have the history officially recorded from the original store source. But also it's kind of a cautionary tale for people developing AI systems because it gets at this issue of the alignment problem. It's very hubristic to assume that we will be able to do a good job of telling machine learning systems what we want. Usually what happens, kind of like in science fiction, is you say, oh, you know, I want this certain thing to happen, and then something wildly different happens. Uh, I was actually listening last night to um, a researcher who was saying, you know, this is very normal, common in, or in, in economics and incentive theory. You know, you think you're incentivizing one thing, but you don't think about a particular loophole and really, really dark pathological things happen uh, or, or comical things. Uh, as a result. And so basically, this paper collects a whole lot of anecdotes. So one that I can say, which is super funny, is from that nature paper, where we were encouraging it to try to walk with different percents of its its legs. You know, We were like, oh, walk with using these four legs 50% of the time, and these two legs 0% of the time. We were doing all combinations for six legs. Well, one of the literally corner cases in this hypercube, the six-dimensional hypercube, was encouraging the robot to walk without ever touching any of its legs to the ground, And the way that we measured by that is if it touched, it's like the foot to the ground. And we looked into that map and we saw color in that square. We thought it was impossible that it would solve that problem. And we actually thought there might be a bug. But it turns out we turned on the video and what the robot does is it flips over on its back and it crawls on its elbows, you know? And so we never thought that was possible. And there it was doing that. Another example I'll share is my PhD advisor. He wanted to study what happens in evolution if you have no positive mutations. If you can only do worse, does evolution just basically become really robust to mutations and try to insulate itself from any effect of mutational change? and so he basically had these little organisms these digital organisms and they would effectively get faster if they did the equivalent of math problems and so he didn't want them to get better at math so he let them get decent at math and he, he basically said all right anyone who does better at math i'm going to kill you and like you know just like go back to your parents i'm going to disallow positive mutations so how did he do that he created this little tiny test environment that basically said oh you know, could you do a multiplication before? Can you do it now? If you can, then I will, you know, sterilize you, and, put you in, and kill you. And so what the organisms did, he thought that they would never learn to get better at math. And he turned it on. And sure enough, for a while, they didn't get better. But all of a sudden, they started getting better and better at math. And he was like, that's not possible. And he looked in and what he figured out is that in his little test environment, he'd only picked a handful of questions to test them on. And they just memorize the questions on the test. Like, oh, I'm going to play dumb and pretend I don't know what seven (laughs) times three is. And then once I fail the test, I get put back in the population. Aha, I actually do know multiplication. And that does give me a competitive advantage over my rivals. And then they were using their math skills to outsmart their rivals. So, you know... This is a very cautionary tale as we build powerful AI that we might think we're like making it like us and be safe and never cause harm to humans, etc. But we might misspecify that in some way we didn't anticipate. And we shouldn't think that, that like, is like an unlikely event that might happen. We should assume it's going to happen because the history of machine learning and AI is that. Evolution surprises us, AI surprises us, reinforcement learning surprises us. And like the first six times we try to do something, we realized that we were not asking for exactly what we want and things went wrong. And so we just have to like build this into our DNA as researchers to expect that there will be the unexpected and iterate and like create safe environments for which we can debug our specifications of what we want these AI systems to do.
0: Wow, yeah, that uh, example of learning to basically play dumb is (laughs) something (laughs) else. And yeah, yeah, looking at the paper, you can actually, like, there's a lot of images. You can see figure seven actually shows a lot flipping over and, like, using its elbows. So uh, once again, uh, you know, we do recommend you go check out these links and just scroll through at least this one, which is really a fun read.
1: Really fun, yeah.
0: So uh, this was a really fun walk through kind of a lot of your research journey. There's multiple things we couldn't even touch on, but I think we we managed to cram in quite a bit. And um, as always, to finish up, we like to kind of get away from AI and research and focus on us as human beings for a bit. You mentioned, uh, traveling for a year and a half and also playing volleyball. So, uh, yeah. What are, what are these things you do outside of your work that, um, you know, you find are fun or, or just like are big parts of your life or happen?
1: Yeah. I think I'm just drawn to extreme. So, I, um, one of the things I love the most is, uh, extreme ways to almost kill myself, So, <laughs> I, I like pretty much every extreme sport that doesn't involve a motor. Uh, or at least uh, an internal combustion engine. So I do kite surfing and surfing and rock climbing, and I like to climb mountains. And I like kayaking and um, and, and things like that. So I really enjoy getting into kind of the, like extreme natural places, like you know, a couple pitches up on like a, a giant cliff wall, and like looking at and seeing the beauty of of the natural world. And there's like a combination of kind of beauty and natural beauty and adrenaline but also learning curve you have to keep your cool like in you know calm under under fire and like you know keep your wits about you and make good intelligent decisions while you're also in like an extreme place so i mean you could almost you could liken it back to my interest in exploration i'm constantly trying to learn new things and explore new technologies and uh, and go to like the far flung corners of the world like the sides of cliffs and the bottoms of oceans and the tops of mountains.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking. It sounds a lot like you have implemented novelty, novelty <laughs> search in your <laughs> own life of like pushing to the extremes of experience and traveling the world. It's true. I wanted
1: to see every culture, and and even now when I see a brand new sport or a new technological capability, I like immediately I'm like I have to do that. So the other day, my latest um, uh, interest is the other day I was here in Vancouver. And I saw somebody just like fly across the top of the water on a board that was out of the water. And they had no kite, no windsurf. It was just quiet. And I immediately realized what's happening is that they basically have an electric surfboard on a foil and so the, there's a the battery in the board and the board is above the water and it just looks like they're just like basically on a magic carpet like sailing across the ocean. So I went out and figured out how to buy one and just two days ago I was here in Vancouver. It's called electric foiling or e-foiling and I'm e-foiling around just enjoying like the engineering of it and like the the, the magical experience of doing things that before just seemed impossible. Wow. So it's kind of like what being a scientist is and I like to do that in my personal life as well.
0: Yeah. So for anyone listening who has this image of professors or, or researchers in their mind of people who work in their offices and, you know, live a quiet, contemplative <laughs> life, just know that, you know, uh, we can be a little more wild in many cases.
1: Yeah, it's contemplative. I'm just contemplating while on the side of, you know,
0: yeah, uh, yeah, exploring a big
1: cliff in you know, Squamish. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, that's really cool. And uh, yeah, thank you with that. We can wrap up. Um, That was really interesting for me and hopefully also for all our listeners. So thank you again, uh, Jeff, for making the time. Absolutely.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it.
0: Once again, this is The Gradient Podcast. Check out our associated magazine over at thegradient.pub and head to The Gradient Substack to subscribe. If you join the interview, we would really appreciate it if you share this podcast with friends. And if you could review us on Apple, that would be awesome. We have very uh, little feedback on there, so we'd really like to hear from you. And by the way, we just launched our Gradient Discord, so take a look at that. Thank you so much for listening, and do be sure to tune in to our future episodes.